Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Our first speaker this morning, um, as you know, the Right Honourable David Willits, MP, Minister of State for Universities and Science, Member of Parliament since 1992. Uh, previously worked at the Treasury and Number 10 Policy Unit. Uh, he's a visiting fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, and I believe, David, a visiting professor of this very institution. Um, he's also the author of the book, The Pinch, How the Baby Boomers Took Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back. Uh, as a fellow baby boomer of David's, um, I was uh, suitably mortified by that and um, worried that I should give uh, children their future back. And uh, we look forward to him telling us how he plans to do that. So, David Willis. Thank you very much, Lee. Well, I apologize again for running late. I won't take you through all the different forms of transport I have already taken this morning. Um, you see, it's... Uh, thanks very much. At least it's not quite as... It was said one of the problems of being transport secretary in any government is you're the only job when where other people are late for your meetings you have to apologize uh, so anyway I do I do apologize for being late um, and I'm very pleased to be here at uh, Julia's invitation because you're absolutely at the heart of the agenda in the budget and for this coalition government after we have uh, tackled the challenge of stabilizing the public finances the next challenge of course is to get the British economy growing and you can get the economy growing, above all, through enterprise, which is what this conference is all about. And the Prime Minister has indeed set us the challenge of making this the most entrepreneurial decade in history. So we've got quite a high challenge to live up to. What I thought I would do is sketch out for you very briefly what we know about people creating businesses, and then move on to that to some of the things we're trying to do, particularly to help young people do this. Um, the proportion of adults in Britain involved in setting up or running a business has been pretty much stable since 2003. It's running at about 6% of the working age population. So one challenge is clearly to raise that surprisingly stable figure. Uh, women are much less likely than men to be involved in enterprise. Now, I have to be very careful with the feminists at the moment, so let me make it absolutely clear. I believe in women having education opportunities, of course, and in enterprise and in employment, and I think the fact that women are less likely than men to be involved in enterprise is a bad thing. We want particularly to encourage this opportunity for women. Uh, there's also some ethnic issues here as well. There are significant gaps between the aspirations, for example, of males from black ethnic groups to start a business and their actual then uh, opportunities to start them up. Uh, what we know is that the peak age for startups for men is that they tend to create businesses when they're late 20s, when they, the rate of startups for men in their late 20s exceeds 100,000 a year. For women, the peak age for starting up a business is rather later. It's in their mid-30s, and that peak there is at a much lower rate than the peak for men. It's at about 50,000 startups a year. Now, I've been talking about startups. The position for business ownership is somewhat different. 39% of business owners are aged 50 and over, and just 20% are younger 
than 35 years of age. So we baby boomers own the businesses, even if we're not, of course, the people by and large setting them up. The main reasons for starting a business for both men and women are a desire to be independent and the nature of the occupation. Some occupations lend themselves clearly more readily to self-employment. Uh, when you look at the difference between the genders again, women are heavily influenced by family commitments and a desire to work from home, which is much less of an issue for men starting businesses. Um, less than 5% of people becoming self-employed say the reason is that they're joining the family business. But despite that, there is some strong evidence about intergenerational transfers here, which I do indeed discuss in my book, The Pinch, because it's relevant for, say, the current debate on social mobility. We know that if you've got a self-employed parent, that significantly increases the likelihood that you yourself will be an entrepreneur. Uh, and there are various, you can speculate about various reasons. For this one reason, you might say, is that young people find the idea of creating your own business, starting a business, a step into the unknown, rather daunting. And if you've got a parent who's already gone through it, you're more likely to do it yourself. That's why, in a moment, I'm going to turn to our policy agenda to make it less daunting and scary for young people. Um, there is, however, another um, explanation, not inconsistent, but a different type of explanation for this, um, which is that access to capital is a factor. And there is some very strong evidence that entrepreneurship is hereditary, and it may be because the assets that your parents have built up enable you to get started yourself. So it also tells us that there are capital market issues which we also need to address. Um, and some evidence for that, uh, receiving an inheritance before the age of 23 significantly increases your chance of being self-employed in your 20s, 30s and 40s. So that's the kind of background evidence that we got that I thought I would set out as a sort of starting point for your conference today. Now, let's turn to what we can do, particularly to help young people get through these barriers of anxiety and ignorance. We, the evidence shows that at the age of 13, almost a quarter of young people say that being their own boss or having their own business matters a lot to them in deciding on their future careers. But we then know that very few leavers, whether school leavers or people leaving FE colleges or university, do go on to start their own businesses. And those who do go on to start their own businesses are, by and large, the ones whose parents ran their own businesses. So... That's why last week we launched our new strategy for enterprise education, aimed specifically at getting understanding of enterprise into our schools, colleges and universities. And I draw your attention to three particular aspects of that policy that we announced. We're going to deliver an enterprise champion program to support the creation of a real business in every school through the provision of online resources for teachers on how to develop and manage a business and a network of local entrepreneur champions. So we want young people to have had the opportunity of running a school, a business in their school, be it a uniform recycling shop, some trading of the at break, whatever. They need to have that practical experience with a very modest budget. And that turns us to the second proposal, working with the excellent Peter Jones Foundation, we're going to expand the already successful Tenor Tycoon program tenfold so that uh, more people can experience the, the, just have the sheer excitement of starting off 
with a £10 or whatever and turning that money into a profit. And I'm told that so far, on the initiatives already sponsored by the Peter Jones Foundation, on average they're turning that £10 into a profit of £22 a month. And then thirdly, we're going to support the development of student enterprise societies in every single university and the majority of FE colleges. Societies that are the engines of enterprise in their institution, that engage with local businesses, provide the skills, networks and know-how for a student who is thinking about starting a business. In fact, these societies themselves are run as businesses. So I hope that through some of those specific steps that, as I say, we launched last week, we can help overcome these barriers. I see that on the agenda you've also got a discussion of skills, so let me particularly mention here something that we in the coalition attach a lot of importance to, apprenticeships, especially apprenticeships in um, SMEs. In fact, the majority of apprenticeship starts are with SMEs, but that doesn't mean that SMEs necessarily find it easy to engage in the recruitment of training and apprenticeships. So the expansion of apprenticeships announced at the budget includes 10,000 advanced and higher apprenticeships specifically targeted at SMEs. Uh, So we're trying to get even the small businesses that sometimes fear most the bureaucracy of apprenticeships, we're going to cut back the bureaucracy and encourage them to do more of it. Um, Let me um, end with two other areas of policy. One aimed at our venue today, and one aimed at the um, organiser, Julia, of Editorial Intelligence. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here at this business school, and indeed I did have the honour of being a visiting professor here for a time, and I see Paul Judge here, who's made a fantastic contribution through his business school in Cambridge. Um, But we now have, as well as those leading business schools, we have in Britain 130 business schools. Almost every university and higher education institution has a business school. One in seven undergraduates do business studies. And there is a growing debate amongst business schools, which I would encourage, just to reflect on the way in which business studies is taught and the kind of agenda that business schools have. Now, I'm a a fan of business schools, and I salute the excellence of this business school, but I'm very aware that we have inherited a structure of rewarding research excellence in particular that can have a very damaging practical effect on the work of business schools. Uh, Because the way in which research... uh, We have uh, created a system in which research has much greater, much stronger incentives and rewards than teaching, which I think is very bad for our universities, and it's one of the reasons for our higher education reforms, getting universities to focus on the teaching experiences, the research, as well as the research, quality of their research. But we know that the prestige comes from high-quality research. And we know that research quality is by and large measured by how many publications you've got in peer-reviewed journals. This is not a criterion that the government has imposed on the academic profession. This is the criterion which, by and large, academics have gone for is the gold standard when they're trying to assess research excellence. And in turn, if the peer-reviewed journal is your criterion, at that point, the economics of publishing and academic publishing and the distribution of learned journals really starts to matter. And business studies is one of the extreme cases where most of the prestigious journals are US-based academic journals. And to get an article, and I'm told by the experts, to get an article into a 
leading American-based academic journal in business studies. They're looking for, ideally, innovations in statistical techniques and analysing industrial and economic sectors, particularly ones, therefore, with large data sets from which you can draw and innovate in your statistical techniques. And because, by and large, they're American, they're interested in American industrial sectors. It's not clear that rewarding our leading academics in business schools for producing research like this is in the long-term interest of the performance of business and education in business studies in the UK. And although our proposals on impact have, had, have been controversial, the last thing I want is to bring in an impact criteria that's kind of clunky and ask people to predict impact. I think that there does need to be a far more open debate than we've had so far about what we can do within our business schools to create the right environment for high-quality, practical teaching and creating businesses rather than uh, teaching business studies so that people can create businesses rather than this set of incentives that we have now inadvertently created for our leading academic researchers in business schools. And I would very much encourage that. Um, finally, especially with Julia here, let me touch on something else that's uh, very important, a recent announcement, which, of course, is Lord Davis' report on women on boards. And to say that, of course, the government very much welcomed that report. And uh, it's very important that we look at business creation, enterprise, and business experience um, th uh, through the perspective of uh, gender equality as well. And we very much welcome his challenge that he set that companies should publish the number of women sitting on their boards and working in their organisations. He recommends that businesses in FTSE 350 companies should set their own targets for increasing female participation on their boards by 2015. And he suggests that FTSE 100 companies should challenge themselves to increase the proportion of female directors on their boards to 25%. And I think the most powerful argument in his report is that this makes sense for businesses. There is some evidence that businesses that um, have a board composition that better reflects the country as a whole themselves perform better. So if you put together this agenda, business and enterprise education and experience through the educational system to break down some of those barriers, focus, uh, a debate for which I, as minister, have some responsibility on what happens in business schools and our universities, uh, the apprenticeship agenda, women on boards, and of course tackling those barriers in the capital markets as well. And I hope that enables us all to live up to the challenge that the Prime Minister has set us of indeed making this the most enterprising decade in our nation's history. Thank you very much indeed. Hi, my, my name's Mark Needham and I, I run a business. Um, if the government w wanted to maximise the number of businesses created then surely you would want to back the winning segment. If, uh, from my experience of marketing, it's about finding the customers that want to do what you want to do them and pouncing on them. So instead of giving a tenner to every child, you should give a thousand pounds to the, the sons and daughters of people like me <laughs> and nothing to the others. And that would maximise um, the output. Obviously, it would conflict with other social goals, but if you wanted to maximise the output, you should go for the winning segment. I think that's a deliberately mischievous question. <laughs> uh, and, um, I mean, uh, two, two comments. First of all, the whole point is that precisely one of the, re one of the arguments why 
the children of self-employed entrepreneurs, more like to set up enterprises, is not, I think, because there's some kind of genetic gift. We want to get beyond the idea that being an entrepreneur is some incredible sort of special genetic inheritance. It's much more to do with the evidence that they don't have the capital market barriers or the educational uh, or, or the uncertainties about what it's like that everyone else has. So that's why they're already managing quite well to create businesses. Everyone else got to think of. And anyway, it's a bit like the great advertising, you know, that great proposition advertising, the... Um, uh, it's uh, it's 20% of our advertising that reaches the key consumers we're trying to reach, but the television don't know what the, which 20% it is. We're often told in many areas of public policy, concentrate your policy on the people with whom it's going to have the biggest impact. problem is how you identify the people on whom it's going to have the biggest impact. So, uh, so I think the strategy we set out is the right one. Mark Prescott from Spark Culture. Um, one of the things that would really help small businesses that you could genuinely actually do, which would be practical and useful, is could you uh, uh, find some way of, uh, of pressurizing large companies to change their, um, the, the scale, the rate at which they pay? Because it's really uh. difficult, cash flow-wise, if you have yes. uh, clients from large companies who, for example, pay sometimes on 120 days, yes. and cash flow is a really big issue for, for, for small yeah. companies. And um, it's, I think it's tough when small businesses like myself are effectively bankrolling large companies, I won't name some of them, who, uh, 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 um, with this issue. Well, and this is a long-standing concern, I know, and um, it is a source of frustration. I think that there have been attempts, I believe there is now a kind of voluntary code that many large businesses pay, uh, sign up to on payment terms, but um, the trouble is, to be honest, that although, of course, getting businesses to sign up to good practice is an area where government can nudge things forward, uh, I would be a bit wary of passing another rule or regulation, sort of requiring businesses to do it, because, um, of course, one of the main things we're trying to do is to row back on the amount of regulation. But this is where arm-twisting and um, uh, uh, public statements of policy, including in, in company accounts, can help.